Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I thought I'd start by just giving you a sense of um, my understanding about what the Dharma is overall. Um, and also I'll tell you a little bit about myself so you know where I'm coming from in my own um, teaching and practice and so on. So the Dharma is the uh, teachings of the Buddha, but also it's uh, translated sometimes as the truth of the way things are. So Buddha was actually a historical person, voila, who lived 2,600 years ago in northern India, and who was a person who had uh, certain uh, existential questions. So he had questions about life, which sent him on his own spiritual quest. So much as many of you uh, probably in some way or another could uh, relate to this, as having been on some kind of uh, search for answers, for uh, answers for things that you didn't actually get to learn in school or that you couldn't... uh, read in the newspaper. or you know. And in his search, he went off uh, in uh, looking out for, for answers, at first from the teachers of the day. So at that time when he lived in India 2,600 years ago, it was actually a time of um, a lot of spiritual practice. So there were a lot of people uh, who were off trying to develop different kinds of meditation techniques and practices, we're trying to answer these deeper questions about reality, about life, about suffering, about different aspects of, uh, deeper aspects about things, about death. So in some ways it was kind of like how, uh, you know, in the Bay Area it is in Silicon Valley now, where there's like a big foment of different tech companies and startups and things like that. So, uh, so he went off into the, the woods, which was kind of like the field, and uh, he kind of joined one group of people and learned from one teacher for a while. And then he learned as much as that teacher had to teach him, but then it it didn't give him all the answers that he was looking for. So then he went and joined another band of people, another uh, group, and he learned from that teacher all that that teacher had to know. In fact, both these teachers said at some point, like, oh, now you've mastered my discipline. Like, you can be uh, basically my, uh, my next in line. But his, his answers, his questions weren't all answered, so he wanted to continue on. So then he went off on his own. He broke away, and he actually did his own practice um, based on his own understanding and the different kinds of things he had developed uh, on his own, which led eventually to his being uh, awakened. So his actually being able to answer all his questions through his direct experience, so penetrating into uh, understanding about suffering, about life, about death, about reality, which we commonly now refer to as being enlightened. And at first he was uh, he was not sure that people would understand this, like if he should actually tell anyone else about this. So he wasn't sure as a teacher if people were going to get this. But then he was sort of prevailed upon to give it a try. He looked around and he said, yeah, there's some people who understand, so... So some people who will be able to get this. So the, the Noble Eightfold Path is actually his teachings that he gave, uh, actually both in his first discourse, his first teachings, and actually also in his last teachings, uh, 
And pretty much everything that he taught in between could be fit into that in some way. So it's kind of the, the framework that he used to guide people uh, in this path to understand their way to freedom, so to happiness, to liberation. So in his first teachings, he remembered this group of people who he had been practicing with, a small group of um, five of them. And he said, okay, I think these guys will understand. So he went off to find them. And uh, when he found them, at first they were suspicious about him because he had been off with them uh, practicing various kinds of uh, basically strong renunciate practices. So they had done uh, acts of extreme renunciation, like they ate one grain of rice a day for a while, or you know, they, they flagellated the body. So they were trying to seek that way towards answering their questions. And for the Buddha, he found like that didn't really work that way. Right? And his past background had been that he was a, from a very wealthy, well-off family. He was sort of a, in the princely caste, uh, had lived in a palace, and so on. So he actually had also tried the path of you know, indulging in sense pleasures, so getting all the pleasant things that you could find, and that also wasn't the path. So his path was uh, the middle way. So when he found his his older companions, they saw him, and he had actually started to eat more and things, and they thought he had kind of like sold out, right? that he wasn't actually you know practicing very well anymore. So at first they didn't really want to listen to him, but then as he came closer, they saw there's something different about him. You know, the transformation was clear in some way, so they actually listened. And the teachings that he gave them were the teachings about the Four Noble Truths, which we're going to talk about in uh, some more detail um, also tomorrow. And in the Four Noble Truths, the Fourth Noble Truth is actually the path uh, to freedom, which is the Eightfold Path. So a lot of these teachings, they kind of um, contain each other. So the Eightfold Path contains the Four Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths contains the Eightfold Path. And in this first teaching, actually, uh, one of his companions um, got it just from hearing this teaching and actually uh, became enlightened. So when the Buddha left his um, home on his spiritual quest, he was 29. And then at the time of his enlightenment, um, when he started teaching, he was about 35. And then basically spent the next 45 years until he was 80, walking around northern India, uh, walking, basically, and teaching people all up and down. And he would teach anyone who was interested and willing to uh, hear. So his last teaching was when he was 80 years old. And the circumstances of his death was actually that he had um, actually taken in some food. He only ate food that was offered to him, right? There was a renunciate. He didn't carry money or something like that. Someone had given him food that was actually poisonous for him. So he took the food, and then he actually knew what was happening. He knew he was dying. but he also had this sense, he knew that there was someone else who wanted the teachings in a different place. So he actually walked in this state of uh, extreme sickness many miles to this town, Kushinagar. And the word kind of went out when the Buddha was somewhere, like that he was there. Right? So uh, there was someone who actually wanted to hear his teachings. So it's kind of an interesting story. So this guy's name was um, Subada, and he had been a... a Similarly, like a sort of renunciate, right? And he came to the to try to talk to the Buddha. He'd heard Buddha was there, and he had some questions. You know, he thought this was a good opportunity. 
But Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, uh, kind of held him off. So said, uh, you know, don't bother the Buddha now. He's actually very, very sick. In fact, he, he knew he was dying. So he was like, no, no visitors today. Right? And this guy Subhadra was very uh, insistent. He said, no, no, I just have a, I have a question I really want to ask, ask him. And I understand he's not well, but I really need to ask him this question. So Ananda again said, no, no, it's not a good time. You can't, you can't talk to him now. He's suffering. So again, a third time. And then the Buddha heard this and he said, no, no, let him come to me. Let him ask his question. So the question that he asked him was uh, actually uh, not the question that he got answered. So his question was, you know, um, there are all these different teachers around who say that they're enlightened in this area. So which ones are enlightened and which ones are not enlightened? Uh, and the Buddha said, that question's not important. <laughs> the Buddha knew he was about to die, so that question's not important. Uh, the question for you is, do you want to be liberated and what's the way to that? So I'll teach you the Dharma, so listen carefully. So this is like in the last hours of his life, he actually gave this teaching, and he said, he gave him the teaching of the Eightfold Path also. He said, any teaching that contains the Eightfold Path is a teaching that will lead to liberation, and here it is. And in fact, also, this guy, the last one who had face-to-face teaching from the Buddha, also went off and practiced. He asked to be ordained, and shortly after, also became enlightened. So this was basically what he was teaching from beginning to end. And in different circumstances, when people came to ask him questions, he would tailor the teachings to them in different ways. So he would teach different aspects in more detail. Right? Uh, so for certain people who would come, he would teach more about uh, ethical conduct, for example. Certain people who would come, he would teach more particularly about the meditation practice. Certain people would come, he would talk more about livelihood. So depending on the circumstances of who was there and what they needed to hear and so on. But all of it actually fit into the Eightfold Path. So the teachings of the Dharma, or the truth of the way things are, uh, are actually the teachings of something that the Buddha didn't actually make up, but he discovered, you'd say. And he discovered also the pathway to this. So he described it as an an ancient path that he rediscovered. So he said, it's just as if a person wandering through the jungle, the great forest, should see an ancient path, an ancient road that was traveled upon by people in former times. And as they went along it, they should see an ancient town, a royal city, that was inhabited by many people in former times with parks, groves, ponds, and walls. So also, I have seen an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled along by fully enlightened ones of all times. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path. So he discovered something that is actually the truth about the way things are. And sometimes I think about this uh, in in line with other other aspects of the way things are that we might already understand. So, for example, uh, one aspect in nature of the way things are is the law of gravity. So this is something that uh, when you're born, maybe you don't totally know about, the law of gravity. And you'll see small babies and 
children, like experimenting with the law of gravity. So you see a baby in their high chair and they'll like be dropping things off of it, you know, like peas and carrots and forks and cups and things, right? And like watching them fall to the ground. And then it's like, oh yeah, you drop it on this side and it falls. And you drop it on this side, it also falls, right? And you throw it up, it still falls. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's a small piece of food or a big piece of food, right? It all seems to go to the ground. And then sometimes they watch the adults come and fetch the things too as part of the game. But after a while, you kind of get the hang of this, right? You may or may not call it the law of gravity, but you sort of understand, like, oh yeah, if I try and place this pen in midair, right? It's not going to work. It's going to fall. Right? And it could be that I'll do it on this side. Right? So a similar thing. And that's basically just the truth of the way things are. So the more that I understand that and the more that I actually try and live in harmony with that, then basically the more harmonious my life will be. So if I try to place glasses of water in midair, for example, right, uh, it's not going to work. There's going to be a lot of broken glass and spilled water around me. And when that happens, also, it's not actually personal to me, right? So if I try to do this again, you know, and it falls, there's nothing personal. You know, it's not like, why, why me, why this time, right? Like, it just happens like that, right? So similarly, actually, the Dharma is the teachings of the way things are, right? And it's something that, that as we actually pay attention and as we actually cultivate this in our lives, we can start to live in harmony more and more with the way things are. So just the same way as, as adults, we usually live in harmony with the law of gravity. Right? And if at some point you don't and you drop something, it's, you, know, you don't have to think about it a lot. It's just like, oh yeah, that's right. I remember, I forgot for a second, or that was a mistake. right? So the Eightfold Path is actually a way of helping us tune into this uh, in a more and more nuanced way. Right, sort of a, a way to help us um, attune our lives uh, to living more and more in harmony with the way things are. So I really appreciate the teachings on the Eightfold Path because um, it covers really so many different aspects of life. And for many people, as you got interested in um, Dharma and practice, you might have come to it from the standpoint of being interested in meditation. That's a, often a common uh, experience in the West. Right? And meditation is a very important part of the path. But also, even if you have a very healthy and robust meditation practice, it probably is only like half an hour, one hour, maybe two hours a day. Right? And then you sleep maybe eight hours a day. Right? But then what are you supposed to do in the other 14 hours of the day? Right? Like in between your meditation periods. Like how, how can that actually be part of your... Uh, practice and spiritual life too, or can it? So for myself, I got interested in these questions um, when I was quite young and started reading a lot of Dharma. And then uh, I started studying Dharma also. Uh, When I was in college, I studied Buddhism and I studied um, uh, different Eastern religions, philosophies. But then I realized I really wanted to get it in my experience. You know, I didn't want to actually just get it up here. Right? So fortunately, there was places to learn practice um, near where I was. So I started learning practice. And then I got really into it very quickly. So I spent several years just doing practice in monasteries and retreat centers and so on. 
And that was actually a very helpful and uh, important part of my life. But then I eventually came back to regular life and got a job and lived in an apartment and uh, took the subway to work and so on. Uh, and I still continued to do retreats as much as I could, but then I needed something else to help me, guide me in all the other time in which I was just having interactions with people and going to the grocery store and, you know, having relationships and uh, getting into trouble and, you know, all that sort of thing. So I found this a very helpful framework uh, in the spiritual path that for me has been uh, helpful for uh, over 20 years and continues to actually deepen. So it's an eightfold path that has, you know, these eight different steps and links on it. Um, but it also could be seen as actually like a, a rope that has eight strands. So all of these ones are differently intertwined. So it's not actually like, okay, do step one and then check, finish that one, and then do step two and then check, right? So at different times in our life, we develop different of these. Uh, and that's actually fine. I kind of feel like as long as we're engaged in some way along the path, as long as we stay engaged, it's natural that at different times, different aspects of it uh, are working for us. So one helpful reflection um, for me has always been, like, what's the most engaging part? So where am I engaged in the Eightfold Path? Uh, And as I introduce this to you, I'm going to ask you to also reflect in this way, too. So, you know, what is it that's compelling to you now? What is it that... Uh, seems to be alive in your life. Uh, what area could use some attention for you right, in, in this path? Right? And at different times of your life, uh, it could be that there's different ones of these that are up, and that's also fine. So also a little bit about um, study and practice and things like that. So uh, many of you have come on, on different meditation retreats in which the instructions have been basically to stay in the present moment and to notice what's happening in your experience of uh, your body, your mind, uh, but not to think about things. Right? So to try to observe thought as just an arising phenomenon as it comes and goes, but not to engage in thought. So what we're doing here now is a different way of practice in which we actually are trying to use our thinking minds to actually understand, um, to actually sort of take in information about the Dharma, and then actually to reflect on that in a way that makes sense for you too. So that's one of the differences in this kind of retreat is, of course, we're actually trying to encourage you to do this too. So there's one uh, framework about uh, development of wisdom uh, that is in the Theravada Buddhist tradition that's about three different levels of wisdom. So the first level is uh, a level of wisdom where you hear something from someone else. So you hear something from someone else and uh, that's sort of like secondhand knowledge that you got. So in Pali, the, the word for this is sutta maya panya. So panya means wisdom and uh, sutta, some of you may recognize that word, means uh, uh, like having heard. So also like the, the Buddhist teachings, the, the different stories about he, the talks he gave and so on are called suttas. And they all began like, thus have I heard. Right? So they're like accounts of something that he said or somewhere he was where he gave a 
talk or answer questions. So that's the first level is this suttamaya panya, this understanding that comes from uh, hearing from someone else. So then there's another level where you start to think about it yourself and you start to kind of make sense of it intellectually. Like, oh, okay, everything changes. Hmm. All right, let me see. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess, you know, there's nothing really that's been continuous in my life in this way. Or is there? You think about it and, you know, so you kind of process that through, right? So this, this level is knowledge that is acquired through your own reflection, thought, and study. So you're kind of making it more your own through applying that, through thinking about it, uh, to your understanding. So this one's called uh, Maya Panya. And then the third level is the level at which you know this directly through your own experience. Uh, so this is Bhavanamaya Panya. So Bhavana is also the word for meditation, actually. And this is where you have, have experienced this directly, such that nobody could tell you something different and uh, make you doubt it. Like you've actually seen directly through your own experience that this particular uh, aspect of wisdom is true. So each of these levels is important. So it's helpful at first to hear something from someone else, right? And then it's helpful to think about it, kind of chew on it, digest it for yourself, you know, reflect on it. And actually in this tradition, we encourage people to do that. So it's not like, oh, just because so-and-so said, or, you know, just because like someone sitting on a platform, you have to listen to them, or, you know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, consider this, think about this, reflect on this, you know, see if this makes sense for you. And then the teachings of the, uh, the practices are, are ways in which you can actually uh, use these tools to see into your own experience to see them for yourself. And then once you know them for yourself, it doesn't matter what anyone else says, you know. So similar to if I touch this bell, and if you ask me a question, is this cold or hot? Right? Like, I'll know if it's cold or hot just from having touched it. So it actually is maybe, it's cool now as I'm touching it. Right? But if someone, if someone says, no, no, the bell is very hot, like, I don't have any doubt about it because I'm touching it. It's like, no, it's cool. I just know that. Right? So I don't need to get upset with them or you know, get worried about it. It's like, no, I know that. Because right? I know from my own experience that's true. So similar on uh, on this path of developing wisdom. Right? So now I'll bring my uh, visual aid in. So this is basically the eightfold path, and This is basically the same that was in your reading of the Eightfold Path, and I've drawn them in kind of circle. So often in the Buddhist teachings, they're put into like a wheel. So a wheel is often a um, symbol for this. Uh, and in fact, the uh, the story that I told of the Buddha giving his first teaching was often called the the turning of the wheel. So it's like started the the wheel of the teaching spinning. You know, the first time for this this period, this period of what now is twenty six hundred years. And I put them in uh, different colors here because they actually are divided into sort of three different sections. So the first uh, parts of Eightfold Path are about uh, right view, right intention. And those are considered in the category of wisdom. 
Can you all see this here? Maybe? Okay, I'll pull it back a little bit. Um, The next ones are speech, action, and livelihood. And those are in the category of ethical conduct. And then the last three are around effort, concentration, and mindfulness. And those are in the category of basically mental development. So uh, often the first ones are about view, is often the first one that's taught. right? And as these are all intertwined, uh, view is both the beginning and the end of the path, you could say. So uh, you have to have some understanding in order to even uh, want to uh, seek answers or try to understand, right? But then we refine our view, we refine our understanding throughout our practice and throughout our life in different ways. Also, these all feed each other. So, you know, in the beginning of our retreat, for example, we uh, spent time uh, taking the precepts, right? So that's in the area of uh, ethical conduct. And it's both because that's an important part of the path, but also actually there's a big connection between ethical conduct and uh, mental development. So around meditation, around concentration, and so on. So it's actually very difficult to develop any kind of stability of mind uh, if you have not been living a wholesome life. So usually we're kind of consumed then by guilt or by fear or um, sort of more of a chaotic mind. But then also the more that you actually uh, cultivate your mind, then the more likely you are actually to cultivate wisdom and then to lead a more uh, ethical life. So they all are in concert with each other. So the traditional um, articulation of these, each of these is like with view, for example, there's a word before it, which in Pali is samma. And it often is translated as right. So like right view, right intention, right mindfulness, and so on. There are many other translations of that word, um, some of which I like actually better than the word right. And it's not actually right versus wrong in this case, uh, but uh, other translations of it are, for example, wise or skillful. So a skillful view, wise view. So this speaks to the fact that actually, like, yeah, this is a path of development, and we actually are trying to do what is aligned with that. Another of the translations that I like particularly are is... uh, about being in tune. So a view that is in tune, or ethical conduct that's in tune. So this is like with the metaphor of uh, music. So the Buddha often used this kind of musical one, right? And so like, okay, so so what would be in tune? What would be in harmony? You know? So this is kind of like being in harmony with the Dharma, being harmony with the way things are. How do we kind of tune up our actions? How do we tune up our view? How do we tune up our mental development, our intentions, and so on. Upright is another translation for that word. So upright in a positive, wholesome way, as opposed to sort of knock down. Or sometimes it's translated as perfect, so that it's a a path of uh, 
perfecting each of these. But if you take it like that, you should always take it as sort of aspirationally perfect so that it's not uh, too dissuading for you, for us. So we are where we are on the path and we cultivate it as we can. So you can see that there's, there's here areas to cultivate uh, in our regular life. So there's dimensions that are around meditation. There's dimensions that are actually around uh, action, speech, even what kind of work or job we should do. The run, run around view is around understanding of the teachings themselves, about cause and effect, about karma, about the three characteristics. And we'll go into each of these in more detail as well. Intention is understanding what intentions in one's heart are actually wholesome and skillful, which ones we should cultivate and bring forth, and what intentions we should actually let go of and not act from. So overall, this is a path of coming into greater and greater alignment and integrity. So with our words, with our actions, and in the most refined level, in our minds. So it's a path about how to live wisely and a path that leads towards living living more wisely. And it can become sort of an organizing principle of our life, too. Like these are guides for organizing our life. So along the way on the path, there's many times at which it feels like... uh, Nothing is really happening, you know. So sometimes if, even if you do a self-assessment about this, you're like, well, seems like not that much is going on, right? So sometimes this too is actually part of the path of cultivating, of development, right? As there is with anything. So you could reflect on also other things that you've learned in your life, other skills that you've learned, right? So like being in school, Maybe learning a musical instrument or learning a sport or something. Uh, learning an artistic discipline. So it, it, there are periods in which it feels like often you're developing like rather quickly or you're learning a lot. And then sometimes there's periods when it seems like, oh, nothing is really happening. Right? But sometimes even though you don't think something's happening, there's a lot happening under the surface right, of sort of development. So recently uh, I took up the uh, activity of learning how to swim the butterfly stroke. So I had swum, uh, I swum since the time I was little, like front crawl and back crawl and breaststroke, but I didn't know the butterfly stroke. And uh, I saw people doing it, and it seemed like a very um, beautiful stroke to be able to do. So I decided to try and learn this. and uh, But I didn't have a teacher. Uh, so I resorted to um, learning from videos on YouTube. And you actually can learn a lot from some videos, but you have to, you know, make sure that you get the videos that actually teach you well, right? So I had to go through this process of trying to, uh, to learn this, and they're learning in different pieces, you know, so a butterfly is a stroke that there's an arm motion, and then there's a leg kick thing, and then there's putting them together, and then there also is actually breathing, too, important in swimming, right? Uh, and then there's getting the rhythm of it all, right? So I started to do exercises that first were with the arms. Uh, and then it actually requires a lot of strength in the upper body to be able to do that stroke. So it took a while to build up the strength and just do this exercise. Uh, 
And then I did the kicking exercise. And each of these pieces doesn't feel particularly glamorous. You know, when I saw someone actually swimming the butterfly, it looked like a beautiful stroke. When I was just like flailing around in the pool trying to get the arms down, it was not that, uh, it was not that uh, beautiful, really. In fact, people complain sometimes that I splash too much and things, you know. But then little by little, I started to develop um, the ability to do some of these together. So I remember at one point I could do the arms and the legs, but I couldn't really breathe, right? So that's a problem overall, but just getting some, some, you know. Uh, and then I could do the arms and I could breathe, but I couldn't kick, and then, you know. But then finally I was able to all, to bring it all together, you know. And then start to become more natural to be able to do it like that. So it's helpful to reflect sometimes on these processes of learning that we have, you know, and at some points it can be frustrating, at some points, you know, you're on a path towards something. It feels, sometimes it feels like there's a lot of progress and it's exciting, right? So continuing to try to stay engaged and to um, connect with it. So one more piece I'll share with you about this um, sort of overview of the path is that um, There are all these different levels in which the path is also addressing. So on the level of ethical conduct, it's kind of on the, the grossest level of our acting and speaking and you know, what we do in the world and how much that causes harm or how much good we do or how that aligns us with the truth of the way things are. So in some ways that's sort of addressing the crudest form of the manifestation of greed, of hatred, of delusion as we go around in the world. Then there's this level of the mental development, of development of um, concentration, of meditation. Um, and the mental development is a more subtle level. So mental de- development actually precedes the action of the body. Right? Something arises in thought as an intention, and then it manifests uh, out in the world, how we act, how we speak, and so on. So you could say that this, uh, this next level of the mental development actually um, addresses this more subtle level of freedom or of the arising of greed, hatred, delusion uh, in our life. And then the level of wisdom of clarifying our view, of perfecting our view, uh, and of, of intention is actually the deepest level. So it could be that we have kind of cleared up our actions in the world, but still there's some arising on the mental level of uh, greed, hatred, delusion, difficulties. And then it could be that we're able to actually develop a certain amount of focus and cultivate concentration. And during the time we're in that concentration, uh, it looks pretty clear. Right? But actually there still are some basically latent uh, delusion, latent greed, latent hatred, these, uh, what's called kilesas or uh, these uh, defilements of mind that arise that are still kind of there. And metaphor is kind of like, well, you could have a glass of a, a glass jar with water and with some dirt in it. And if you put it down for a while, the dirt will settle. So that could be like in concentration. But it's still there on the bottom. So if the glass gets knocked over, if you shake it up, it's still going to, you know, like muck around a little bit. Right? So the deepest level is actually this wisdom of uh, right view, clarifying that. And that's actually what will uproot uh, these from our heart and from our mind stream, which is actually the promise of the path that this is actually possible. But all of the levels are important um, for our cultivation and for our path. So I want you to to consider for a moment, just in reflection for yourself, 
which of these aspects do I feel like I understand most at the moment? Which of these do I understand the least? And also, which of these are actually uh, most alive in my life? Like, I feel like, oh yeah, this is where I really want to practice. This is really where I want to engage. So I'll give you a few minutes to reflect about this, and you can jot down some notes, and then we'll do a little um, exercise with this, too. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.